0: Well, how many of you know what déjà vu is? Déjà vu. Déjà vu comes, it's actually a French term that means already seen. Already seen. And I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have experienced this. Maybe you walk into a house and, and your kids run up to you and, and you get this almost like a weird, awkward sense that I've been here before this experience already seen and felt exactly the same way. Or you go to the restaurant, someone greets you, and it's almost like you've seen that happen. You've been here, right? It's a weird feeling that probably happened to to most of us. Well, this morning as we come to this passage here found in in Matthew 15, um, many people experience deja vu, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 15, verse 29, as we will look at these passages here or these verses in front of us, Um, and in particular, because uh, almost the order of the passage is similar, we've been there already, so many similarities between 15, 29 through 39, and 14, the feeding of 5,000 as opposed to the feeding of 4,000. And we'll look at this passage this morning and we will see why it's here, why Matthew and Mark alone. Remember I said that the feeding of 5,000, all gospel writers record that miracle. But it is Matthew and Mark alone who record the feeding of 4,000. And it's such close proximity also to one another. So what is the Lord, right? Remember that scripture is inspired by God. It is God's word and so why would he compel Matthew to compile this account and put these two stories so close to one another? Remember, this gospel is written for the first, or for the first century Jew, and primarily we have the benefit of uh, having God's word here, but as they read, what would they see here in these passages? Now look with me at the beginning of 15, and, and as we make our way through If you recall earlier passage, we've seen last week a woman, and not just any woman, a Gentile woman who received great mercy from Jesus Christ. And as readers, right, we we sort of still hear the echoes of the words recorded in verse 27. Her words, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Matthew, as he continues his narrative, we see that Jesus continues to show great mercy, not only to this woman, right, but to all who follow him. He reveals himself as a compassionate God, but not only the God of the Jews, but also God of Gentiles. We see in the first few verses that he heals all who come to him And they come to him with incurable diseases. And once again, he turns small little crumbs into a large feast for the people in a desolate place. And like the woman, the crowds, friends, they don't deserve any of this. But the Lord does it out of abundance of his compassion and mercy this passage here, demonstrate that Jesus is not only the hope of Israel, as we've seen in the opening chapters of Matthew, but he is also the hope of the nations. He is our hope. And that's why many of us are here, right, this morning, is because Jesus is our hope for the Gentiles, which now fulfills what Matthew already said. If you flip with me back to Matthew 12, Matthew 12 here Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, and look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Not just the Jews, not just the children for whom Jesus came, but in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Go back to 1529. We'll begin Reading, and we'll read through the end of the passage, and we'll look at this, these verses here. Verse 29, Matthew 15:29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. And having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them "'Away hungry, for they might faint on the way.' "'The disciples said to him, "'Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place "'to satisfy such a large crowd?' "'And Jesus said to them, "'How many loaves do you have?' "'And they said, seven and few small fish.' "'And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. "'And he took the seven loaves and the fish, "'and giving thanks, he broke them "'and started giving them to the disciples.' And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. As we look at these um, Two stories. I want us to sort of gather our thoughts around this one major heading that Jesus affords hope to all who acknowledge their incurable disease, including the Gentiles. Including the Gentiles. No one is outside of Christ's reach as long as they come to Him. I want us to see two things happening. Matthew first presents the healing and then the feeding. The healing and then the feeding. So we will see first that Jesus is the nation's hope of redemption. Jesus is the nation's hope of redemption. And then in the feeding, we will see that Jesus is the nation's hope of provision. Redemption and provision. I want us to look at, first of all, beginning with verse 29. You know, one of the most uh, featured aspects of Christ's character in this gospel and in other gospels as well is his compassion. It's his compassion. We've already seen references to his compassion, but in this passage, specifically in verse 31, this is the first and only instance where Jesus himself refers to his compassion in the first person where he says, I feel compassion for the people. Not a testimony about Jesus' heart, but just like he said earlier where he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace, right? For uh, He says, I am gentle later on and humble in heart. Here he says, I feel compassion. So it's no longer Matthew's testimony or his disciples' testimony about Jesus. No, Jesus opens up his heart and he says, here's who I am. I feel compassion. Now, those of us who have read portions or maybe the entire Old Testament and New Testament are aware that God is revealed on the pages of scripture as a compassionate God. Or um Psalm 103 verse 13 says this just as a father has compassion on his children so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Lamentation 322, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. Multiple, plural, his compassions never fail. Isaiah 49, 13, shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Rejoice, why? Because God is full of mercy. You know, one of the greatest lessons about the father's compassion was taught to the prophet. Remember what prophet? Jonah, prophet Jonah. Unlike this reluctant prophet, God has mercy on not Israel, but on Israel's enemies, which almost like foreshadow what we're about to study here. And he says in Jonah 4, then God said to Jonah, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Should, not I, should I not have compassion on your enemies? God friends is extremely compassionate and because he is he goes great lengths to demonstrate his compassion and care. And we see it all over scripture. One of the main passages, right, that we know about God's care is in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7 where Peter says, "Cast all your what? anxieties on him, why? Because he cares." Because he cares for you. Well, friends, God's compassion is most clearly seen in the face of Jesus. Get this. God's compassion is most clearly seen in the face of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You study him, right? He who knows the son knows the father. That's what Jesus said. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9, flip back a few chapters and I want to highlight something for you as we will reach here back or forward into Matthew 15. We've already seen in Matthew 9 verse 13 where Jesus quotes from Hosea in In addressing the Pharisees who are, again, they're in the same right, same mold. They're just challenging Jesus every step of the way. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah and he says this, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I desire compassion. And then later on in the same chapter, in the same chapter, verse 36, Matthew then testifies about Jesus who desires compassion. That's not only something he desires, but he displays, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. He felt compassion for them. Now, who are the them? He felt compassion for them. Who? The people who are later in the same verse are described as, look with me at verse 36, distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion for these distressed and dispirited sheep. Who are the sheep? Well, later on, look at verse 10 or verse 6 of chapter 10. He says, rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the sheep here are qualified as those who belong to the house of Israel. It's his own people. Jesus looks as his own nation and he feels for them. He is moved by their brokenness. They are wounded. They are torn by the effects of sin. They are inwardly devastated and are in hopeless condition. Later on, we studied in chapter 15 Jesus says they are hopeless because they have no shepherd their shepherds their so-called shepherds are 15:14 are blind guides They have no hope and so this shepherd this true shepherd good shepherd he comes and he sees this devastation and he feels compassion Look with me at 14:14 14, 14. Jesus is once again among the Jews and he has the same reaction he feels compassion for them, and he heals them. He sees a large crowd, he feels compassion, and he heals their sick. He restores his sheep. And later on, after restoring, he feeds them in 19 and 20. He feeds and restores. So there's this healing and feeding. Now, What's significant about chapter 15 in our section here as we get to it is that it's virtually identical to chapter 14. Right? Same thing. Healing first, and then the feeding. In fact, there are so many similarities that some are skeptical about the fact that these two passages might be an account of two different events. They basically accuse of the gospel writers as getting the facts wrong. Remember these these stories were passed down verbally from one to the next. And so um, liberal scholars, they would look at these stories and like, nah, they, they, they can't be the, you know, two different events, 5,000, 4,000. What's the difference? Because of so many similarities here. But I can assure you that they are different because Jesus Later on, we'll see in 16, Matthew 16, he assures us that they are different. But here's the main point of this passage here, 29 through 39. Jesus affords hope of redemption to all who acknowledge their incurable disease. He does not restrict his mercy to the Jews only, chapter 14. He does not restrict his mercy to a lone Gentile Chapter 15, verse 21 through 29. No, Jesus not only is willing to save one dog, he lets the whole pack into the house. Many Gentiles. The similarities here in these two passages, they're meant to illustrate something very profound. What Jesus came to do for his own children, he likewise does for the outsiders, the dogs. Jesus is not only the hope of Israel, he is also the hope of the nations. Look with me at verse 29. Departing from there. Departing from there. So Jesus leaves this region of Tyre and Sidon where he met this Canaanite woman and he goes up on the mountain along the Sea of Galilee, we read. He went along by the Sea of Galilee and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. Now, we're not exactly sure, according to Matthew here, where this is, but Mark in the parallel account. Remember, Matthew and Mark, they write about the same uh, event here, the feeding of 4,000. Mark tells us in chapter 7, verse 31, that Jesus is actually doing his ministry in Decapolis. Decapolis is this region that is southeast of Sea of Galilee. So if you were to, I don't know, maybe you have a map in the back of your Bible. If you were to look at that map, you have Tyre, Sidon, and Jesus comes around. He goes around on the east side of Galilee, down, avoiding the Jewish area here on the western side, and he goes into another Gentile territory, southeast of Sea of Galilee. And he is there. This region, Decapolis, is made up of 10 cities. Deca is 10. Pauli's is city. So 10 cities. And they're predominantly Greek pagans, made up of Greek pagans who worship other gods. Right? Idolatry and, and paganism. Very similar to Tyre and Sidon. There entire inside and Jesus ministers to one Gentile. Here he demonstrates and ministers to many. Why? Why is he ministering to many? Well, verse 32 tells us that he feels compassion for the people. Friends, these people here that he's ministering to, they're not the same. They're not part of God's covenant people. Yet we see Jesus' concern and his compassion, which spills over to the Gentiles. We read in um, at the beginning, Oleg read in Ephesians from Ephesians chapter 2, right? Those peoples, they had no promises, the Gentiles, they had no, they had no covenant. God wasn't obligated by his promises to them to fulfill those promises. No, they were complete outsiders. Yet Jesus demonstrated that the grace he came to give to his own people spills over to the Gentile. He goes over or up on the mountain, verse 29, and probably this position that's highlighted here, he was sitting there, which means he was teaching. That was a typical um, teaching position as someone would sit, it would be assumed that they were teaching. Kind of like Matthew 5, right? He goes up on the mountain and he sits down and he teaches Sermon on the Mountain in the next three chapters. And as he teaches, large crowds are gathering and they're bringing their sick. And Matthew is very specific. He's not just saying, you know, they brought their sick and and he healed them. No, what kind of sicknesses What were they suffering from? He is very specific, lame, crippled, blind, mute, and and many others. These people, they weren't just, you know, uh, had a stomach bug or a headache or or, or something that, that can't be attested to. No, these were suffering from diseases and sicknesses that nobody else can cure. And that's the point. If anyone was going to cure them, it would be the Messiah that was promised to come to Israel. And notice what Jesus is doing. He's not asking these people, are you a Jew? Can I see your birth certificate? Prove to me that you belong to my people. No, he's not asking this. Are you part of God's chosen people? He's not challenging them. He's not even doing what he did to the Gentile woman up north. Here he demonstrates that his mercy is unrestricted. He restores all. And these people know who Jesus is, and so they literally bring their sick and they cast them. They sort of throw them down at Jesus' feet. Heal them, Lord, because only you can. Friends, remember that just like the woman up north. These Gentiles they are turning away from worshiping their idols to Jesus because they believe something about him that so many of his own people, Jewish people fail to believe that Jesus is sent from God. He has the power to cure and that power is a demonstration of his messiahship. They 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 marveled after they saw what Jesus did and so here we see Verse 31, so the crowds, they marvel. And again, Matthew repeats, what are they marveling at? The fact that this man, this Jesus, has the ability to restore the mute, the crippled, and the lame, and the blind, because they are speaking, they are restored, they are walking, they are seen, and look at their reaction, they glorify the God of Israel, They glorify God of Israel. And this is a very significant statement here, highlighting that these people, they are not the Jews, that they are Gentiles. Never in scripture will you find in the New Testament, in the Gospels, right, of Jews where it says, and they glorified God of Israel. Like Jews glorify God of the Jews. No. The reason why it's specified here is because it's another nation. It's another type of person who's glorifying not their God, but God of Israel. They are outside, and yet they are brought in. You know, in the Old Testament, when, when we see this title use, the God of Israel, it often reminds us that God in his love has not only saved his people, but that he draws Close to them. He he belongs to them and they belong to them. One of the ways that God shows his closeness is that he takes their name. He takes their name. In other words, how many times do we read God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why is that important? It displays God's desire to be close to his people. I belong to you and you belong to me. This is exactly what what we do, right, when a couple gets married. One of the ways that this couple shows that they are so close is when the wife drops her name and takes the name of the husband. I belong to him It's exactly the same thing. Israel belonged to God and God belonged to Israel. But here in this Gentile territory, folks who were not part of Israel, they glorified the God of Israel. An indication that these Gentiles are praising the God of Israel for the work that he is doing in the face of Christ. They realize that their God is no God their own little idols and gods. There are no gods. They have no power to do what this God is doing. And they also realize that the same blessing which their quote-unquote enemies are experiencing is now extended to them. Friends, Jesus is the nation's hope of redemption and restoration. You know, some years later after the death, resurrection, and in the ascension of Jesus Christ, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and uh, this church was made up of many Gentiles. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we've had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come." turned from idols to serve a living and true god why because jesus says i feel compassion for these people here i want to demonstrate grace to them beloved as we as we consider these gentiles who are being mended and who are being restored physically let us let us learn and I think be, in some cases, be reminded of this very valuable lesson that the one who healed those extreme bodily sicknesses, what he was showing here is that he is the only one who can heal our souls. Yes, he healed broken bones and limbs and body parts which were not functioning properly. But that was only meant to demonstrate that he has the power to restore the whole man, whole man. This was an opportunity for him to display his power and to remind everyone that he alone has the ultimate power to overcome our ultimate problem. And of course, friends, as you and I know our biggest problem is the problem of sin, which he is on the way to, what, dealing with. He's going to the cross. If this was, if physical healing was the goal, then this would have been enough, but that's not enough. He is going to restore man's relationship to the Father. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He gives us this warning He says, let us, however, not forget that our souls are far more diseased than our bodies and learn a lesson from the conduct of these people. Our souls are afflicted with a malady far more deep-seated, far more complicated, far more hard to cure than any ailment that flesh is heir to. They're, in fact, plague-stricken by sin. They must be healed and healed effectually or perish everlastingly. Do we really know this? Do we feel this? Are we alive to our spiritual disease? Alas, there is but one answer to these questions. The bulk of mankind does not feel it at all. Their eyes are blinded. They are utterly insensible to their danger. For bodily health, they crowd the waiting rooms of doctors. For bodily health, they take long journeys to find pure air. But for their soul's health, they take no thought at all. Happy indeed is that man or woman who has found out his soul's disease. Could this be some of you here this morning? Some of you who may be far more interested in seeking bodily health than soul health. This picture of Jesus' compassion coming along and healing people is a picture of The fact that we all, that Jesus is our only hope of redemption and restoration. Only he can heal. And not only can he heal, but he does. He desires, as we will see, to heal. And as we already see, he healed them. And for us who have experienced this deliverance and who have experienced this healing, friends, are you encouraged here to respond like the Gentiles responded to glorify and praise God of Israel? Isn't that why we sing? Isn't that why we put up these lyrics that remind us of the grace, right, to the undeserving? that remind us of the work of Jesus Christ, so that as we reflect and as we consider ourselves, that we were once not a people, that we were once did not belong to God, but now we belong to God, do we respond like these Gentiles, glorifying the God of Israel? He is compassionate. He's a compassionate redeemer who sets us free from slavery to sin. Jesus is the nation's hope of redemption. We also see here in this next episode in verses 32 through 39 that Jesus is the nation's hope of provision, of provision. I don't know if you thought about this, but food is a major topic in the Bible. It's probably why we like to eat a lot And not just the fact that food is the major topic, but every time God wants to show his love to people, he often does so with food. Think about all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? He planted a bunch of fruit trees to demonstrate his love. In the wilderness, he gave them manna and quail. In the promised land, this repeated phrase, I will give you a land that is flowing with what? Milk and honey. I will care for you. How will I care for you? I will give you food, abundance of it. Even the Lord's Supper that we celebrate monthly, right, is a demonstration, right? It has two elements, wine and bread. And it is a demonstration of God's care for us. I have given you my son. And he gives this these elements as a Remembrance. I love you. I care for you. And at the very end in history, friends, there will be this meal of all meals, party of all parties, feasts of all feasts, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Why? It's going to show the fact that God wants to fellowship with his people, he wants to fellowship with those he loves. And he shares food. That's why we share food, right? Usually we don't invite enemies over for dinner. Probably should. But we invite friends, hospitality, right? To show that, hey, there's something in common. We want to share love for one another. When we look at Christ's earthly ministry, friends, so much of it revolves around food, right? He dines with sinners and prostitutes. You don't ever see him dining with the Pharisees. Why? Because they have nothing in common. They reject Jesus Christ. Food. And here again, we see another feeding. All of these instances, they, they all sort of point slowly, progressively to this final feeding, this final banquet, right, that is anticipated, that Israel anticipated, of which we already read in Matthew on multiple times. And here's another preview. Except, except, as we have already observed, this banquet is not exclusive for his people. This banquet now extends to all of Gentiles. It is for the outsiders. And get this, these crumbs, right? These crumbs that both Jesus and, 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 and the woman um, illustrate here in the previous section, the, the, these crumbs, they are enough to feed anyone who comes to him. All of this shows that Jesus is the compassionate provider who wants to fellowship not just with his people, but with all the nations. Why? Because he is worthy of worship from all and everyone. Like I said already, there are many similarities between the two feedings. If you um, think about what we already studied in chapter 14 to now with 15, Both cases, we have large crowds, and they're both hungry. Both have same elements, fish and bread, right? Jesus takes them. He gives thanks to the Father. He breaks. He gives it to the disciples. They distributed. Both groups are set to be satisfied. And in both cases, there are baskets left over. Abundance. More than what they needed at that particular moment. But there are a few major differences, and I want to highlight those, few major differences. For instance, in Matthew 14, the crowd spent one day with Jesus. Here, they spent three days with Jesus, right? There's different supply of food. Back there, five loaves and two fish. Here, we have seven loaves and a few fish. It looks like this is a different time of the year. Back then, Jesus said to split them up and to Make sure they sit on grass, which probably highlighted a different season on grass. So probably in the early summer here, we have late summer or early fall where he says, and they sat on the ground, people to sit verse 35 on the ground. It's a different word that's used for like dirt, no more grass, dirt. Um, There are also different words for baskets. And this is also interesting. Baskets In chapter 14, there were 12 baskets, but the word for basket that is used was used more in the Hebrew kosher setting. There were like smaller baskets that they used to transport food and to keep it clean. Here, the word for basket is used, um, that that was used basically in this uh, Greek circulation. It's a big basket. Same word is used in Acts chapter 9. That, uh, where Paul escapes in the basket from the city, so big enough for Paul to fit in. So there's that also probably illustrating the fact that we're talking about Gentiles here as opposed to the Jews. And and the difference in the number of baskets that were gathered, 12 there, seven here, and the obvious difference is 5,000 versus 4,000. So obviously these feedings are different, and Jesus would later on distinguish, look with me at 16, Matthew 16, verses uh, 9 through 10, he says, Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? Again, Jesus knows that these things or these events were two separate events. But friends, perhaps the most subtle difference which teaches us a great lesson is found in verse 32. It's found in verse 32. Remember in the earlier feeding of the Jews in chapter 14, it was the disciples who come to Jesus and said, Lord, people are hungry. You must let them go. Disciples come to Jesus. Now, Jesus is ministering to the Gentiles and seeing these hungry Gentiles, do the disciples come to him? No. Jesus comes to the disciples to address them and he says, I feel compassion for the people. Jesus comes to the disciples and he testifies to the disciples. I feel compassion and the implication might be, we don't know for sure, but it could mean this, why don't you, do you not feel compassion for the people? But before we press too hard on these disciples, I just want us to, To remember something Jesus himself told the disciples before as he sent them out to minister he says do not go in the way of the Gentiles remember he said that in in uh, chapter 10 verse 6 do not go in the way of the Gentiles but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel disciples right now they're no they're not they're not among the Jews they are among the Gentiles Perhaps the disciples didn't even expect Jesus to perform a miracle like this for the Gentile crowd. This feast was reserved exclusively for the Jews, especially after he reiterates to them just earlier on, just a few months before, that he was sent only to the lost house, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in chapter 15, verse 24. So the feeding is not even on their radar. They're not even thinking about the fact that these guys are hungry and Jesus is about to feed them. Jesus came to feed the Jews. So Jesus, friends, is the one who initiates this feeding because he is demonstrating to the Gentiles and his disciples that he is a compassionate provider for all the nations. And not only, as I said, does he have the ability to do it, but he has the desire to do it. And he says, I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint On the way, I want to demonstrate the same kind of care and compassion that I demonstrated earlier to another crowd. And it's almost like the disciples forgot what had happened earlier. Where do we get so many loaves? What do we do here? They ask. I mean, these disciples, they're a great picture of us, right? Because we are so much more like the disciples than we are like Jesus. John Calvin says, because daily a similar dullness creeps over us, we must be more careful never to let our minds be turned aside from reckoning the benefits of God. How many of us have seen Jesus do amazing work in our lives, in our relationships, in our trials? But the moment a new problem arises, a new trial comes up, we begin to doubt. We forget we wonder if he can do it again. So we must be reminded again and again of God's power and willingness to provide for his people. And, and so we see that Jesus takes and he he collects it all and he directs people to sit down again and he he blesses what was brought to him and he breaks it and And he gives it to his disciples again and again, same thing as before, in order to demonstrate one very important point that I'm about to give to them what I've given to my own people. And look at verse 37, and they all ate and were satisfied. Exactly like the earlier group. He doesn't give them something less. He gives them exactly what he gave to the Jews. And they gathered seven large baskets of leftover. I don't want to make too, many, too much of the uh, you know, study of numbers, but as I mentioned before, 12 may have illustrated um, the fact that Jesus not only feeds this group of 5,000 or 15,000, however you want to count with women and children, but there are enough baskets left to feed the entire Israel. 12 baskets. Here we have number seven, and number seven here represents completeness in Scripture. It represents fullness, and so it might suggest that Israel is not the whole mission of Jesus. A complete mission of Christ will come with the entire world when the Gentiles are fed as well. So church, in both cases, the people find themselves in a desolate place without any provision, and their only hope is Jesus only he can provide and he does provide why because jesus is worthy of worship of all the nations not just of his own nation because jesus desires the worship of all the redeemed sinners jesus here begins to teach his disciples a very important lesson which he will make clear in matthew 28:19 where he says go and make disciples of all the nations. No longer do you go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but you go to make disciples of all the nations. And they will need to be reminded of that again and again. Remember in Acts chapter 10, you have this vision of the unclean animals for Peter. And Peter's doubting and God teaches them and he sends him out to Cornelius to this unclean dog to go and preach the gospel. Why? Because God intends to save people from all the nations. And there's a lesson for us here as well, friends. It is very easy for us to limit our compassion and our gospel ministry to those within our bounds, right, of our congregation or of our family, of just our own daily experience. People who think like us, people who look like us, people who speak like us. And don't get me wrong, Sometimes we fail to show God's compassion to those people. Husbands, we ought to be compassionate towards our wives, our children. We need to demonstrate this, and we can because of the love of Christ that's been poured out in us. But the lesson here is that Jesus is calling us to show his kind of compassion to those who we might be inclined to shun. As we worship this God of Israel we are to be controlled by the love of Christ to have this kind of compassion to those that God places in our lives. Because God desires to dine with nations. Nations. He is their only hope. God wants to fellowship with them. And he uses his church right now that's made up of every tongue, language, tribe, and nation to spread his gospel far and wide, beginning with here. As we come to the end of our time, I just want to close with this. It is not an accident that Jesus' disciples, they got double dose of this lesson. That he is the only one who can overcome our real needs. Only Jesus can redeem. Only he can satisfy Friends, more than any, more than all the benefits that Jesus gives, really the the greatest benefit is, like I said, is having him. Not just food, but food is meant to illustrate something that God wants to dine with sinners. He wants fellowship with us. He is not just our hope and troubles. He's not just the hope of the world He is the personification of hope. Isn't that why he went around and he said, why are you worried like you have me? Why are you worried about what you will eat? You have me. Why are you worried about the storm? Here I am. It is I. Do not fear. Why are you worried about drowning? I'm here. Just like Jesus did not send the crowds away empty hungry. Or empty or, or hungry, neither will he send away any of us, friends, who come to him, acknowledging our incurable disease, and put our hope only in him. Because he did not only come to save his people, he came to save the nations. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this provision that we are here this morning And it's a great testimony that this promise, your mission is being complete where so many nations are represented, even in our small circle here. Languages, people who don't look the same, cultures that are clashing together. We come and we sing the same song of redemption, a new song about salvation. We thank you for that. We praise you. May we be inspired this morning to look forward and and to consider how it is that you intend to use us to be compassionate, not only to those who are close to us, who we naturally cling to and are compelled to reach out to, but to those who are different because you intend to bless everyone. Help us, Lord, to just be armed with this passion to make much of Jesus Christ This week, we ask in his name, amen.